0: Coming up on Tech Nation, the former director for Emerging Markets at Google turns to creating social impact. Anne May Chang, the executive director of Lean Impact, joins me live from the Women in Leadership and Philanthropy Symposium at the University of San Francisco. Then we visit the world's largest medical library, the National Library of Medicine at NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. Jerry Sheehan, its deputy director, joins me to talk about its global data initiatives, and we'll learn that you can actually visit. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. The
0: street I grew up on, on the East Coast, not the West, had a little surprise for me. Somehow, suddenly, it became a one-way street. I drop by every so often if I'm in the area, and there it was. I couldn't make a right turn at the corner of Lawrence and Morrison and pull in like my mother did every day. From my earliest years. Standing in front on the sidewalk, our house was at the top of a modest hill by my present San Francisco standards, and the kids, all in snowsuits, would sled down after a big snow. Everyone checked for cars, shouting if one or another came unexpectedly out of a driveway, shouting to both the car and the sledder. At the bottom, you had to be a little careful. The street T boned into a busy cross street. This kind of approved group behavior would be unimaginable today. But we all made it out alive, uninjured, and with terrific memories. But if we do that today, we would be sledding the wrong way down a one-way street. What? My internal compass turns askew. I still have my sled and the frayed rope that I pulled it with. And my experience is still the same. In my mind, it will always be a two-way street, filled with shouting and laughing kids until the cold or the dark or mom made you come inside. (music) Streets are technology, and the organization of streets are a community decision. Or rather, they're supposed to be. I suspect most times somebody got what my folks would call a big idea, as in, whose big idea was this? It usually meant that we would just have to learn to live with whatever it was once it had presented itself as a reality. I have the same reaction today living in San Francisco. There are numerous traffic lanes now painted red in various heavily trafficked areas. They boldly declare bus taxi only which you can easily read because there is nothing in the bus taxi lane and you are stopped behind a car because a three-lane road has become a two-lane road and double park deliveries are all still plentiful. Advocates declare a big victory on these lanes since as a result, buses will now take me downtown three minutes faster. I mean a big three minutes faster. But no mention of the impact on anyone else. It's always easy to optimize for a single parameter, but navigating city streets for everyone is complex, especially when technology is changing all the time. Those lanes that say bus and taxi only, they might as well have painted no Lyft, no Uber, for there are some opposed to that sort of thing. When another study determined there were more cars jamming San Francisco because of Uber and Lyft, it didn't mention that there were less roads available. But wait, there's more. Since we love bicycles, we have wonderful new bike lanes, some taking out even more lanes. Driving over here to KQED, I have to make a right turn across what is now a bike lane floating into the middle of the road. I've never seen a bike there. Early, late, midday, nope, empty, empty, empty. And yet I slow down, always afraid I'll hit someone. These are big ideas, all right, and here's another one. I want a sled lane. Why not? We got the hills, we just need a little snow, and I've got a very environmentally conscious sled. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Anne May Chang, the Executive Director of Lean Impact, before a live audience at the Women in Leadership and Philanthropy Symposium at the University of San Francisco. And we visit the world's largest medical library, the National Library of Medicine, at NIH, the National Institutes of Health. There's no need to visit. Most of their vast information is available online. It was during Anne May Chang's eight year career at Google that she expanded her personal efforts to include social impact. She went on to the U.S. State Department and to the U.S. Agency for International Development and to write Lean Impact How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good. Here is her interview. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. <laughs> We're broadcasting live from the Women in Leadership and Philanthropy Symposium 2019, an initiative of the University of San Francisco. So welcome, everyone. Today, I'm interviewing Anne May Chang, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank Let's you see. so much for having me today, Mara. So many times they come on for what we call a book interview, which really means you published a book, but if you just wrote a book and that was it, you don't have a lot to talk about, and you've got a a very, very big background here, widespread background, and I wanted to start with things that are included in your book or touched on in your book, but uh, have sort of a bigger picture here. In 2016, you uh, spoke at TEDx Mid-Atlantic in Washington, D.C., and your TED Talk was entitled Ending Global Poverty. Let's think like Silicon Valley. Actually, when I first heard that, I I thought, which part did that Washington audience have the most trouble with, global poverty or Silicon Valley? (laughs) You don't know equal?
2: It might have changed between now and then. That's
0: true. Lots (laughs) changed. Uh, Let's start, first of all, with who is poor globally? What counts as poor? And within that, what's extreme poverty?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people have different opinions about what poor means. Uh, The benchmark, I think, that's used in the global development field most widely is one that the World Bank came up with, which they define extreme poverty as people who live at under $1.90 a day. And as of 2015, there were a little over 700 million people still living in extreme poverty around the world.
0: Now, I think what's so amazing to me about these people that we consider poor, apparently, To to quote you, the adoption of mobile phones has skyrocketed. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is that
2: in the global development field, we have spent... The last 30 years trying to provide people living in poverty around the world with access to basic services like clean water, electricity, sanitation. And we've made slow but steady progress on all of these things over the last 30 years. In the meantime, mobile phones came out and adoption of mobile phones skyrocketed so that today more people have access to a mobile phone than a toilet. The estimates are that today about 5 billion people have mobile phones. Uh, which is astounding. So even people who are living in very remote, very poor
0: areas have this lifeline to the rest of the world. It seems to me that the fact that they have them, I'm assuming they're not all smartphones. They're of the cheaper variety um, that we started out with, if you will. I'm assuming that's a great opportunity for social change.
2: Absolutely, I mean, I think being able to connect to information, being able to access people, access services gives people the ability to connect with economic opportunities to get information about um, how to run a business, how to get a job, um, access um,
0: educational opportunities online, and so forth. So what are is they, they selling at this market versus that market up? Oh, this is more. Let's go over there, sell our products over there. Exactly.
2: I mean, we think we take it for granted these days how much information we get from our mobile phones. I know that on the rare occasions when I forget my phone or lose my phone, I feel completely helpless. And you can imagine the kind of power this has for people who um, really don't have very much else.
0: So along with food, water, sanitation, a roof over one's head, medical care, perhaps the definition of poverty might be lack of access to the Internet. Well, I think some, some
2: people would call access to the internet that that it should be a human right because it is, in this modern day and an age, how we stay connected to the world with our loved ones. In fact, it's um, one of the things that's been really striking to me is I've heard from, in so many different circumstances, that people the Maslow's hierarchy of needs has been flipped a bit and that people will often t- pay to top up their mobile phone before they'll even buy food
0: um, because it's become so essential uh, to their lives. In fact, you know, when we look at economics, we hear about the laws of economics. You know, back w- whenever that was, we studied guns and butter. We traded guns and butter across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, the big thing about laws of economics is that they're man-made. They're not like the laws of physics. They're not like you know chemistry. They're not. We can't fight those. We have to find out what they were, what they are, and work with them. But economics has to do with what will work. And you have to understand these situations and the opportunities uh, that they do to create new economics and then social impact within them. Uh, Let's just take one example about a socially impactful business in a very unlikely place. It's uh, off-grid electric. Mm -hmm. Let's explain that and, and how that worked, how that business actually worked. Yeah. So for about
2: 600 million people living in Africa are living off the grid without access to electricity. And you can imagine that means that they don't have lighting at night to be able to work or study, um, can't charge their mobile phones and so forth. And as a result, what they end up doing is paying for expensive and polluting fuels like kerosene in order to light their homes at night um, and damages their health, is expensive, and so forth. And so a lot of people have been trying to solve this problem. One particularly interesting and innovative company called Off Grid Electric started up in Tanzania with this crazy idea that they would provide solar panels using a pay-as-you-go system for people to pay them off, using a, a, a mobile money, a kind of payments over a mobile phone. And because for people who are living in rural areas of Africa who are very poor, the upfront costs of buying a home solar system is just too much. They don't have that kind of savings, so they're just not able to afford it, even though it could be less expensive and less polluting over time. And so by allowing people to essentially pay for you know, a few cents a day to access electricity over time paying off their, their home solar system, they're able to get lighting. But this, it's a huge risk. This is a very different business model. Yeah. Who knows if these people will be able to pay off their solar systems over time? And it was a company that we supported from the very early days at USAID.
0: And I think what we need to understand is that when you provided this seed funding in in several tranches, a very small first tranche, tranche, and it went up to, I believe, $6 million in, in total, that that was to have proof of concept of the technology, of the business model, into a sustainable business model to make sure it was going to work. Exactly, and I, what
2: I've found is that the most interesting solutions these days are happening at the intersection of sectors. That this wasn't a charitable endeavor that we're just giving out solar panels to people, because you could only pay for so many solar panels to give out. You're not going to get to 600 million people. But instead, we were the upfront risk capital, if you will, as a grant funding from USAID, to place that earliest bet of just $100,000 to try out this new idea to see if it would work. And when off-grid started getting traction and showed that people were interested in buying these solar panels and were able to pay off their loans, we gave them a second tranche of a million dollars and started to enable them to invest in building out their business. And then as they were ready to really get to big scale, we gave them another tranche of $5 million. And off this about $6 million total that we gave to off-grid in terms of grant funding from USAID, they've now been able to raise over 150 million in debt and equity from private markets.
0: That's exactly where the story turns. This isn't about giving money and it gets spent and then giving some more money and it gets spent. Because it's become a sustainable business model, a sustainable economic model, you can then go forward and it can sustain itself with other investments. Still, how do you get $100 million into something like that? I mean, who is going to invest that? well so it was about 150
2: million in debt and equity so 150 both, okay yeah so about about half and half debt and equity and a number of uh, on the equity side there are a number of institutional investors like the um, multilateral finance institutions like the IFC would invested in it IFC um, is the, the International Finance Corporation, uh, um, and impact investors like Amityar also invested in it. so folks who are looking for ways, and I think more and more people these days are looking for ways to be able to invest and be able to make a profit from their investments, but also do it in a socially responsible way where they 're doing good at the same time, and Companies like Offgrid Electric are showing that both are possible.
0: In fact, today, its headquarters is in the Netherlands. It has offices in four or five African countries and has a lab over here on Diharo Street. So I think it's doing pretty well after six (laughs) years. And if Omidyar sounds familiar, uh, we're talking about the Omidyar network. Uh, Pierre Omidyar and his wife Pam co-founded that, and her passion was trading PEZ dispensers, and so he wrote the software to trade them, and the result is eBay. So... All of that eBay, one of the only dot-coms that made money right from the start. So, you know, when you think about perspective, you know, certainly they did have venture capital, etc., but they always had revenue. It wasn't waiting two, five, ten years for something to come in. They understand that you can start to make money right from the start. It's a different kind of proposition, that people are talking about.
2: Yeah, and Pierre has been a huge proponent of social entrepreneurship, I think, from his own experience as an entrepreneur. And he's looking for ways to take that entrepreneurial
0: spirit into making the world a better place, which is fantastic. And there's another example from Africa. Uh, Sanga Moses in Uganda, the CEO of EcoFuel Africa. Now, they're still one to five people. It's a very small company. But they started a company that not only had a, a benefit, but also now is a network of 600 women retailers. So we're talking about impacting women's economy. Do you recall how that whole thing worked? Well, it's a great
2: story because one of the things that I think is absolutely true when it comes to innovation is that people who are living in closest to the problem often understand it the best. And Sangha Moses grew up in Uganda, in rural Uganda, was very successful, was his first to go to college, went and worked at a bank. And one day when he came home to visit his family, he found his sister walking by the side of the road carrying this huge bundle of firewood. And he was we wondered, like, why is she doing this? Because she was supposed to be at school. And it turned out that she had to skip school in order to gather firewood so that the family could use that to cook and warm the house and so forth. And it really inspired him to say, we've got to find a better way to address this problem. My sister needs to be able to go to school. And so... He quit his banker job and he came up with this fantastic invention that became equal fuel that was a machine that would take agricultural waste and press it into these fuel briquettes that then um, became an extra income stream for farmers who could start selling a product that they made from just the waste they would have thrown out otherwise, but also became an extra stream of income for over 600 women who are selling these briquettes in their
0: shops. You're listening to Tech Nation live from the Women in Leadership and Philanthropy Symposium at the University of San Francisco. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Anne May Chang, the Executive Director of Lean Impact and the former Chief Innovation Officer at USAID, the United States Agency for International Development. She's here today with Lean Impact. How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good. Part of this also goes to culture. We can sit here and say, oh, I have a really great idea, but it has to work in the culture that you're going to go to. You must have seen a lot of that when you were at USAID. Absolutely. I think it's so essential to be um,
2: what we call proximate. Um, Too often here in the US, we think we have the answers for everybody else and often we fall flat on our face when we get into the real world and see how people respond because people come from different cultures, have different realities, have different experiences. Um, And so being proximate, um, both spending time ourselves in the field, engaging people who really come from those communities, um, who really understand the problems at an intricate level is so So essential at every stage of the innovation process, from understanding the problems to start with, from designing solutions, and then testing and iterating to improve those solutions.
0: Now, before we get to a US-based and local example, actually, let's go to lean impact, or perhaps a little earlier, to the concept of lean, lean startup, uh, which has well lean methodologies. And uh, Eric Reese, who became a Harvard Business Entrepreneur in Residence went on to write The Lean Startup. He came on Tech Nation, in fact, in 2015. You can find his interview out on the internet. He founded The Lean Startup a Company, where you're now the executive director of Lean Impact in the social space. But you actually knew Eric from earlier in, in your career. He was a software engineer at there.com when you were the vice president of engineering. Was that the first place you guys became friends? Yeah, we met at there, I think, about 15 years
2: ago, um, before Lean Impact or Lean Startup existed. We were building
0: this online virtual world. And you're both computer science people. Yes. So how does that work into thinking up these models or looking at these models? Do you think it has an impact? Absolutely. So Eric talks about
2: the lean startup essentially as a methodology for building products and services under conditions of extreme uncertainty. And sometimes people think of you know, lean startup or lean impact is sort of some faddish new thing, but it's essentially based on the scientific method. This is nothing fancy or new. It's really looking at how do we, when we have a hypothesis in the face of great uncertainty, how do we test that hypothesis? And we do so, he describes in lean startup, by building an experiment, something he calls a minimum viable product. That's the cheapest, quickest thing you can do to learn about your hypothesis and then we measure the results of our experiment to see what happened, and then we learn to see whether our our test failed or succeeded, and as a result, either double down on, on our current path Um, or potentially make some adjustments and try again, or recognize that we need to pivot and take a different path altogether. And so at the core of lean startup and lean impact is this notion of the build, measure, learn feedback loop that what's most important is looking at how quickly can we go through that cycle because the faster that you can iterate, the faster you'll learn and the
0: faster you'll get to the best solution possible. And in fact, we do this all the time in coding and programming. It's like, try this. Well, what about that? We'll try that little separate thing over there, see how it's going to work. But it doesn't have to just be technology. It could be, how are humans reacting to that technology? Or how are humans behaving? Or if you've got hardware, does it last? There are many, many questions that need to be in that cycle. Oh, and, and it was interesting for me, because when I left Google and I decided...
2: About seven years ago, I want to spend the second half of my career doing something to make the world a better place and decided to focus on global poverty. But initially, I wasn't sure what that would be because I just knew how to build software, and that wasn't necessarily the thing that was most needed. But what I found was that everybody, because I came from tech and Silicon Valley and Google, everybody wanted me to build them an app or build them a website. But I wasn't convinced that that was where I could make the biggest difference. And what I realized over time is that in many ways, I think what silicon valley has to offer the world is not only the technology but this mindset this entrepreneurial spirit this this rigor this this pace of progress that has driven this you know what what we've seen coming out of silicon valley and can drive change for good
0: in addition care message local story let's talk about that
2: sure so um, care Message is a nonprofit here in, in the Bay Area, uh, and they started out uh, looking at this issue that they identified: that people who are disadvantaged, who were getting health care at free clinics, were having much worse outcomes um, if they were diabetic than uh, people on average. Um, and they wanted to address this issue. They thought this was really an awful situation. And another thing that they also learned was that there was an inverse correlation between people's wealth and the amount they use the text messages. So the population that they were wanting to work with um, was accustomed to texting quite a bit. And so they decided to put these two things together and uh, came up with a hypothesis that if they use text messages to provide information about nutritional tips, reminders on appointments and so forth, that people's health care would improve. And they decided to start small. So instead of building you know, a whole complicated app and technology system and so forth, they decided to start by running an MVP, which consisted of manually texting a handful of patients, just fa- friends and family. What MVP is? Oh, the minimum viable product. So they decided to manually text me- send text messages to friends and family who were diabetic to um, try it out, to see whether they would respond. And they learned a lot of things from this MVP. One is that they discovered that when they sent messages that were just you know, just the facts, you know, this, this is the data about nutrition, this is what you should be doing, and so forth, that people weren't paying so much attention. But when they framed it as if it was from a friend, somebody who cared about them personally, people were much more likely to respond. They also learned that when people first got a diagnosis, they would be really overwhelmed and wouldn't be able to digest all this information. So they realized that they needed to space out their messages to give people a little time to kind of digest their situation before giving them all this information. And so through these kinds of tests that they did early on, again, without building any technology, um, they were able to identify that this was a solution that could work and how it might work, and then go on to build a platform that has now served over two million people, um, and is showing great results in terms of both improved, um, reduced missed appointments. How do you, how do you say that? Um, we'll, we'll, we'll take that, reduced missed appointments.
0: <laughs> um, we're so, engineers, we so, can do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so
2: by sending these text messages, their patients were far less likely to miss appointments, um, and they've also been more successful at
0: being able to lose weight and improve their nutrition. How do we measure yeah. what's the right kind of model Besides what, besides just trying to do some good here, so. One of the th- things that I think is really essential that we
2: do is that in, in the business world, we all know that companies are trying to maximize their profits. You know, They're required to maximize shareholder value. And I believe that any mission-driven organization, whether you're a nonprofit or a for-profit or foundation or impact investor, that if you're, say, you're mission-driven, that we should want to maximize our impact. I and mean, we should do everything we can to maximize impact, not just do some good. I think we often don't set the bar high high enough. And to maximize impact, that means getting to both increasing your effectiveness and increasing your scale.
0: I've been speaking with Anne May Chang, the author of Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at iTunes, NPR One, Stitcher and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, the National Library of Medicine. Its data is waiting for you whenever and wherever you need it. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. We return now to Anne-Mae Chang, the author of Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good, from the Women in Leadership and Philanthropy Symposium at the University of San Francisco.
2: Whether you're a nonprofit or a for-profit or foundation or impact investor, that if you're say you're mission-driven, that we should want to maximize our impact, um, and we should do everything we can to maximize impact, not just do some good. I think we often don't set the bar high enough, um, and to maximize impact, that means getting to both increasing the your effectiveness and increasing your scale, and, you know, both breadth and depth of impact. And so, getting to scale is really important, but scaling social impact can often look very different than scaling a company. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a huge company with thousands of employees making bazillions of dollars. Um, Scaling your impact can come through replication, um, things that we've seen, for example, through microfinance that started in Bangladesh and then proliferated around the world. Or here in the U.S., something like Alcoholics Anonymous has a tiny office. Um, They publish some books and and, uh, materials, but then give the information out to any community to be able to start their own chapter. And, and, and sort of speaking of microfinance, um, I'm on the board of BRAC, uh, which is another organization in Bangladesh that also was one of the early pioneers of microfinance. And to this point of maximizing impact, um, one of the things I thought was really impressive that BRAC did is they started out doing microfinance loans to women, and the women would do things like buy a cow as a productive asset so that they could the cow would produce milk, they could sell the milk, and what they discovered was that the women weren't being able to fetch very much money for their milk because they were living in rural areas, they didn't have refrigeration, so they could only really sell the milk to people immediately in the town and it wasn't a, they weren't able to fetch very much money from that. Um, and so what Brack ended up doing um, when they discovered this is they started a dairy business Um, And so they set up refrigeration sites across the country where women could drop off their milk. They guaranteed a good price for milk that they would buy. And then they brought the milk to the city and processed it and made dairy products, cheese and processed milk and yogurts and all sorts of stuff. And so it became a win-win where they were able to make a business that was self-sustainable, but it also dramatically raised the incomes of those women that it wasn't just the microfinance loan, is that they
0: needed to be able to plug into the economy. People participate in many ways. Uh, They can invest. They can provide insight. They can provide good old-fashioned elbow grease. And uh, I think that one of the things I want to have people who are listening, or people here in the room, is to say, how are the different ways you can participate in this new lean impact uh, cycle, if you will? Well, I think we're at an exciting
2: day and age where everyone is thinking more and more about the effect of everything we do in the world. Um, and so people are voting with you know, where they work. They're demanding that their employers are socially responsible and doing good. Um, how they, where they invest, um, where they buy, the products that they buy. And so I think with anything that you're doing with your time and money, um, you can think about how you're having impact with, with, with your time and money. and. Um, and and really demand again not just be satisfied with doing some good, uh and, and ask the tough questions of the organizations you're supporting to say, Hey you're you're working on a tough problem, you're doing something and that looks like it's doing some good, but how can we do more? How can we maximize the social benefit we're creating? And that could be by becoming more cost-effective, by scaling further and so forth and
0: bringing the skills that we have to the table in addition to our dollars to the table. And how do we measure it? Not always is it easy to measure it. Sometimes you need a redesign to get a measurement factor in there. Yeah, one of the,
2: the uh, frameworks that I uh, introduce in the book is this notion that for a social innovation to succeed, we really need to test for and optimize for three dimensions, value, growth, and impact. So value is the, the simple question of, is this not only something that people want, but will they demand it, come back for it, tell their friends about it? Does it really fill a deeply felt need? Uh, gr- impact asks the simple question, does it work? Is this something that creates the social benefit that you intend, and to the degree that's needed? Um, And finally, growth Ask the question of, is there an engine that will accelerate growth over time so that whatever you've come up with, like a microfinance or otherwise, really can get out to everyone who could benefit?
0: Do we have questions? Are there questions floating around in cards here? Oh, here's a good one. Do you anticipate starting a social enterprise shark tank for television? (laughs) That's a great idea. We actually
2: ran a shark tank at a a conference that Feedback Labs puts on in D.C., where we had, I think it was two different social entrepreneurs come up, and we had a panel of judges, and we actually judged them on these three dimensions of value, growth, and impact. So they gave us a pitch for their social innovation, talked about um, what they were delivering on value, growth, and impact, and uh,
0: had the judges weigh in. It was a lot of fun. Now, there are people who view, Miranda asked this, uh, people who view business as greedy and or corrupt. How can I convince a whole population of people that believe this, that there is a way to achieve social good through innovative and sustainable business practices? Now, that's a great question. Uh, the uh, I feel like we're making good
2: headway on this. Um, I think there's more and more businesses that are doing more than you know, just superficial things to do good that are really integrating. Um, you know, uh, I think historically we have always, we, we looked at social good from businesses as a CSR, the corporate social responsibility, that we'll, you know, we'll do some nice things on the side, we'll get some good PR and people will like us. But these days I think businesses are integrating more, thinking about social good as a double or triple bottom line, of how does this become core to our business? And I think a big part of that is the consumers, the
0: employees, the investors, all putting pressure on companies to do more. Innovation often requires trial and error. Uh, how do you minimize harm from failed or abandoned experiments? That's a great
2: question. I get this question a lot. and I think it's one of the biggest reasons why we don't innovate for social good. Um, and I think there's a few ways I would answer this question. The first is, um, part of how we minimize harm is that we start small. It's another reason it's so important to start small. Um, if you think of how we test vaccines, So take the polio vaccine. When you test a new vaccine, you start by testing it in a petri dish. Then you test it maybe with rats. Then you maybe test it with monkeys. And then when you test it with people, you don't give it to 1,000 people, you give it to one person or a few people. And you watch very closely and you try to make sure nothing bad happens. I think that same way that we would test a vaccine is how we should test social innovation, that, that if we have an intervention, we think it might be helpful to somebody, that we have to run those tests to first make sure it's, safe in the equivalent of a Petri dish for whatever you're doing, and then do it with only a few people so that you're not potentially harming a lot of people. And if some unintended consequence happens, you can notice it very quickly um, and be able to make them whole and do something about it. Um, I would also say that we think a lot about the downside risk of social innovation, but we don't often think about the missed opportunity. So back to the vaccine example, If someone didn't test the first polio vaccine, and that certainly was at least some risk, even despite all the precursors, millions of people would have died as a result. And I would say that it's irresponsible for us not to test better solutions for education, better solutions for energy, better solutions to empower women, because there's a lot of damage and a lot of suffering in the world that will be done if we. Do nothing. So we, we have to weigh the, you know, take measured risk, but also recognize that doing nothing is not a good option either.
0: In nonprofits or mission-oriented uh, organizations, how do you work with management to be open to doing things differently, to be innovative? How, how do you work? How work do you... with your management. Oh, so if very you're an happy employee at they're... a nonprofit. Yeah, you're trying to, or it could be for-profit, you know, it's just uh-huh. because... How do you work with them to see, the, see a new picture, a new vision on the horizon?
2: Yeah, I think it's tough when your management is not on board. Um, I think uh, some of that comes from looking at ways that you can build alliances, like who are the other people who your managers um, listen to, who the leaders listen to, whether it's their board of directors, whether it's their customers, um, whether it's their peers. Who are the people who can influence them that... uh, can show them, can either put pressure on them or kind of show them success. But within an organization, again, to the smart start small theme, I think part of it is we can usually find a little room on the margins to run some small experiments. And if we can show and get some data that shows, hey, if we have this kind of message or if we have this kind of product, our customers will be you know, much more likely to come back, much more, be willing to pay more money. Like what, whatever those things can show that, it, um, that the results will also deliver for the business. That's another way to get, get that data that you can go back to. So it's not just a
0: fight of ideas because that's a hard one to win. Uh, gender equity is a greater social good. You worked in a field traditionally populated by males. What advice would you offer to women to be successful in their careers? That's a very big question. Um, I think it really. Oh, we got time, man.
2: Um, Well, so I I worked in the tech industry for 23 years in engineering, and it is very male dominated. I think in industry, it's like 10 to 15 percent women, depending on where you are in the software engineering fields, Um, and. You know, I think it's hard when you're such a small percentage. There's a lot of things we can do. I mean, I can cite all the different programs we had of, you know, having mentors and having, you know, professional groups and having different empowerment training things and, um, you know, trying to do outreach to bring in more women. And we did all these different things. Um, But at the end of the day, if you only have a pool of 10 to 15%, it's always going to be an uphill battle. So I came to the conclusion when I was in the tech industry that the only way we were really going to be able to change things was to get enough women in. And the only way we are going to be able to do that is to increase the pipeline. And we're not going to be able to do that with one special program after another. I think the way to increase the pipeline in computer science is to require computer science in high school. Everyone has to take computer science. It makes a lot of sense. If you think about it, everyone has to take physics and chemistry and biology. And how much do we use those things versus computer science? And in fact, I don't know the latest stats, but in many states, computer science doesn't even count as a science credit. Um, and so you 're discouraged from taking it, so if we have everyone take computer science, then I think you 'll end up with a critical mass of women in the field um, and and start making you know and, and when you have more women at the table, then I think things really start to change
0: well Anne May, how did you have the courage to change your career halfway through? You know,
2: I had made this decision in my mid 20s that I wanted to spend the second half of my career doing something for good. Um, and as I got, so, so I had a lot of time to think about it. I had like 20 years to stew on it and kind of test the waters and figure out what I would do. So it was certainly not a sudden decision, um, but it was still a big leap because it was a, I went from working in, at Google, at a tech company in Silicon Valley to working at the State Department, right? So you can't imagine two more opposite <laughs> organizations. And I went- You had to go buy new clothes. I did. I had, to buy, I had to buy suits. I didn't used to own a suit. Um, I, and I went from an environment that was like 90% men to an environment I worked in the, in the Office of Global Women's Issues at uh, the State Department. So I went into an environment that was like 95% women. And one of the, you know, people often ask me when I went to the State Department, like, gosh, you know, the bureaucracy, whatever, it's like working for the government, how is that after working at Google? And the thing that actually was the biggest adjustment for me was working... In an environment that was ninety five percent women versus ninety percent men, because I had spent my whole career getting accustomed to like how a bunch of geeky men worked um, and when I went to the State Department and worked with all these women, people would do things like, ask me how my
0: weekend was. And I had no idea why they were doing this. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ann May, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Maris. It's been a pleasure. From the Women in Leadership and Philanthropy Symposium 2019 and the University of San Francisco, for Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Anne May Chang is the author of Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good. It's published by Wiley. The National Library of Medicine is the world's largest medical library, and it's one of 27 institutes at the National Institutes of Health, better known as simply NIH. The library was founded in 1836 as a bookshelf in the office of the Surgeon General of the Army, and today its deep resources extend from its archive of rare books and medical materials to the far-reaching digital information of modern times. I was able to speak with Jerry Sheehan, its deputy director. Well, Jerry, welcome to Tech Nation.
3: Well, thank you, Mara. It's a pleasure to have you here at the National Library of Medicine and have an opportunity to speak to you about all the wonderful things that we do here at what we call NLM.
0: I want to start by asking you about a concept many people are not familiar with, and it's called open science. What is open science?
3: Well, open science is is a concept about trying to make science more accessible to everyone. Scientists, the public, students, teachers, educators, uh, and, and of course, clinicians, care providers, by doing a couple of things, and one is making what we consider the research products or the products of research more easily freely accessible to everyone i 'll say everyone with an internet connection, we recognize as the the quantity of research being conducted every year it continues to grow right around the world here in the United States. It's difficult for any individual researcher or research team to be aware of all the relevant research that exists. So what we do through some of the services and the tools we provide is provide a place for people to come and search easily for published literature about a topic of their interest, uh, and increasingly, a data that's related to that research as well, so that not only can you read the, the associated papers and publications, regardless of where they were published. But now you might be able to have access to the data that relates to that research. You might be able to reuse, in some cases, that data or analyze it further. So we think we're, we're helping people keep up with the growing volume of information that's being generated by research and helping them make more use of it. Because we, we, we know that The the data are collected. They're very valuable. It's hard for any individual researcher or research team with a particular focus in mind to essentially mine all the potential value and knowledge out of that data. So we want to make it more available to other researchers as well. And when I say researchers, in many cases, what I also mean is other people who are in, in teaching and education. For some t- uh, of our data, it can be it's available to the public. So you may have somebody who is outside the mainstream research process, but who has a great interest in understanding a particular area or research area. And they may be an engineer who wants to develop a new tool. And having research data available can be a, a, a key ingredient in helping them do that.
0: Now, when you're talking about this, you're talking about the actual raw data so that a scientist, one scientist may be able to get the raw data from another study and take a look at that?
3: Well, it may or may not be the raw data. So there's a whole sequence of steps that goes from the collection of the raw data through different steps of processing to what might be a small data set that sits behind a figure that might be published in an article. Typically, we're not collecting the raw data, and we can but we can collect the data at different points in the process. And that does help. I mean it does help.
0: You can look at it itself how it how it builds into the table you're looking at or the graphic you're looking at. A lot of times you need that data to recreate different aspects just for yourself.
3: That's right. That's right. So that's maybe at one end of the the spectrum. Uh, you know, another end is something that we're doing in in our our PubMed database which is fairly heavily used across the research community and beyond. We have, I think, 5 million different users every day of this this content. And the database itself is essentially it's the abstracts and the citations to biomedical and health-related research articles. I think we now have close to 29 million of those abstracts and citations available. What we're starting to do is, is allow and to highlight and make more discoverable related data sets that might be submitted or linked to from those research articles so that we can provide somebody now an ability to find the small research uh, data set that sits behind the figure in the article or to find what's often considered called supplementary materials. And it may be the, the data, the more extensive database that's associated with the research article. So we're looking for ways to better collect that information too and to make it available through this one portal that is so so heavily used every day.
0: Who is a citizen scientist?
3: I think almost anyone can be a citizen scientist. So you know, when we use the term, we think about people who are not professional scientists or, or clinicians, uh, and many of them are. They are students. Uh, they are educators who may be interested in a particular research project. I think as we're moving into an era of, of greater data powered health and, and the increase of, of data collection, especially in the biomedical and the life sciences where we focus here, we see an increasing interest in people who have data and analytic skills, who might not come out of the biomedical and health tradition, but who see an opportunity to apply their their skills and their capabilities to analyze data sets to create new insight that can advance everything from drug discovery to treatment to population health and how do we look at uh, improving the health of large populations of of individuals. And so I think there's great new opportunities to expand the scope of citizen science to include people with these types of skills now.
0: And there certainly are citizen researchers. When you have some kind of an unfortunate medical situation in your family, be it you or someone that you love, uh, the first thing you do is like, well, what can we find out about this? It's all out there, the that's National exactly. Library
3: of Medicine. Exactly right. that's, exact, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. A motivated patient right, is, is one of the most active users of a lot of our resources, in particular the publication and journal resources, because they are looking for the latest knowledge possibilities of new treatments. uh, And they will bring, often downloaded from our our systems, a a printout of an article or a set of articles to their clinicians and care providers, you know, and ask them about different treatments. Uh, They will be looking on behalf of members of their family, who they're caring for, who they care for, to try to find the the most up-to-date knowledge that they can use to inform the the treatment of that disease or condition.
0: And of the 300,000 clinical trials which are out there, almost half of which, or approximately half of which, actually are not even in the United States, you can find out who's recruiting for what subjects.
3: Yes, you can. So through our uh, system we have called clinicaltrials.gov, uh, you can have access to information about close to 300,000 clinical trials, as you say, in the U.S. and around the world, where we indicate which of those are... Still actively recruiting participants, which may be not yet recruiting, but maybe in the near future, uh, and we also then have information about the the results of an, a growing number of those trials uh, for people who are interested in finding out what happened in the most recent research results. So I think we now have a, a bit over thirty thousand of those trials with this type of summary information, and of course, we do the best we can to to link from information in our clinicaltrials.gov database back to related literature so you can get broader context and understand how does this trial fit into and contribute to what's understood about the progression of a particular disease or the effectiveness of a different treatment, whether it's a drug or it's a medical device, or maybe a change in behavior, a change in diet or exercise, for example.
0: Okay, so let's go back to 1836. What the heck was going on then, and how did we get here?
3: Well, it's been a, a long and interesting journey from there, but I think this was at the the time that uh, within the, the U.S. Army and the Surgeon General's Office, relatively newly created, I believe, there was an interest in creating uh, access to the, the latest medical knowledge and information. So we literally began as a shelf of books in the office of the Army Surgeon General, and over time, in fact, our, our links to the military continued for many years, from 1836 into the 1950s, uh, by which time we were the Armed Forces Medical Library. And it was uh, it was at that time that there was recognition that the, the value of a library and the medical knowledge and the challenges to address in terms of health and public health went beyond uh, the military to the, the overall population. And so it was in 1956 that we became uh, the National Library of Medicine with a charter to collect, organize, and disseminate medical knowledge broadly uh, and became really a, a not just an institution of the nation, but a service to the nation where our doors were open to, remain open to anyone who wants to come in and consult the, the collections that we've put together. And of course, since that time, we've expanded in, in many ways. Uh, Most notably, taking advantage of information and communications technology. So while we we still have here uh, our bricks and mortar National Library of Medicine, and we still have our physical collections of, of books and journal articles and medical images and films, we've increasingly moved into a digital environment where we serve this information essentially across the nation, around the world, to anyone who has an Internet connection. Uh, and we are been, have been moving uh, more of our our literature uh, collections, more of our digital collections, sorry, our data collections, into a digital format. So we now have you know more than uh, five million people a day come and use our services from around the world uh, across the country, and we have and that includes, I should say, not just individuals, people sitting at their computer keyboard, or increasingly at their mobile phone. We also make our information available to them. We have a lot of of people who come to us in systems, other information technology systems, that come and use our resources. So I think we we have something on the order of 7,000 transactions per second going on across our data systems here at the National Library of Medicine. And we move terabytes of data in and out of our systems every day.
0: Now, I know that you have a 10-year plan. I believe you're in the first year of that 10-year plan. Yes, we are. What are the plans for the next 10 years?
3: So the first is accelerating the research and development around uh, data science, what's called biomedical informatics, these areas that bring together medicine and computation, computing, and data. Our second objective is around stakeholder engagement and finding new ways to have sustained engagement with all the kinds of, of people and institutions and organizations that can help us in that process. Both those who can provide us the information we can make accessible, and including all of those who can make use of the information. And the third major theme is around human resources. Again, around data and informatics. How do we build the workforce that enables us, as a country, as a community, to, to benefit from data-powered health. And
0: to be clear, if you're here in Bethesda, Maryland, between 8 and 5, Monday through Friday, you can walk right in and, and do your research right here at the National Library of Medicine.
3: Yes, you can. We welcome you to come in and do that. We have reference librarians who are here who can both help guide you through some of our electronic resources and provide access to our, our vast collections here.
0: Well, Jerry, thank you so much. You're always welcome on Tech Nation.
3: My pleasure, and again, we welcome you and anyone else to come here and visit us at the National Library of Medicine.
0: My guest today is Jerry Sheehan, the Deputy Director of the National Library of Medicine. More information can be found at nlm.nih.gov. More information about clinical trials can be found on the web at clinicaltrials.gov. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.
1: Tech Nation and Biotechnation are productions of Tech nation media. I'm Paul Landcourt